listen You can hear their hearts beating loud Can't keep those California Indians down Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Earwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Those people who are forced on slave ships to come to indigenous land, a variety of nations in their land, those are indigenous people, right? We kind of erase that particular history and narrative, you know, not acknowledging that they were Akan, Yoruba, and, uh, you know, a host of other indigenous tribes with their own forms of uh, indigenous cultures, etc. So, like, that's myth number one, because we erase that through the transatlantic slave trade. Today on American Indian Airwaves, supporting alternative media and an in-depth introductory conversation on Afro-indigeneity and indigenous peoples and African-Americans historical and contemporary acts of solidarity and strategies for the future. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone through air in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know when come a honey blows to the bar who drum. Hello, everyone. We want to remind you that KPFK is in its fun drive mode, and we encourage you to support alternative media and support us here on American Indian Airways by supporting the station during its fun drive. We are offering Dr. William Robinson's brand new book, The Global Police State, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, you can call 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK or go to the kpfk.org website and you can choose to become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by making monthly donations there you can go to the KPFK website at kpfk.org. Marcus? Well, Larry, we are on our effort to not only fundraising for the station, but also we want to stress the American Indian Airways of KPFK has been around for more than 30-odd years. And American Indian Airways is always, we believe, report on the essential aspects of what's happening in the country. And within this book that we are offering, The Global Police State, as a thank you gift by William I. Robinson, it talks about certain things, and it also talks about what no other really program or Native American program talks about, and that is what really is the cause of the oppression, exploitation of First Nations, and are living in the colonial settler society, what that means. And this book answers portions of that. It doesn't answer all of it, but answer portions of it, the system and the studying the system of global capitalism. And that the the book in itself is gives us a handle about how this global police state and how these three interrelated developments, as William I. Robinson indicates, the author of the book, that is the most 
repressive mass social control of not only the world but within the United States. And secondly, how the global economy of means of making a profit and continuing to accumulate capital in the face of stagnation. And thirdly, the realm of development of characterized, as he did in his book, 21st century fascism, and how this fascistic approach is not the ending, like in popular media, as when a president steps down or different groups revolve around a particular personality, but that this realm of global capitalism has its effect on the nature of national politics, the nature of Indian politics, if you will, and the nature of how different people in society, as well as political sense, express it in the, in the way in which they can make some understandable projections as far as what needs to be done, Larry. You're so right, Marcus, and we want to remind listeners um, the significance and the importance of KPFK and, and the work that we tr- do here on American Indian Airwaves. And, and despite trying times and precarious times, uh, we encourage people to support alternative media, alternative voices or indigenous voices, which shouldn't be alternative voices. Um, but in the everlasting um, canonization, if you will, of a handful of media companies and digital media companies controlling the media landscape, uh, indigenous voices still remain highly marginalized. And, and we want to remind listeners that uh, William Robinson's book, The Global Police State, is a $125 premium that they can pick up by calling 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK. You can visit the kpfk.org website as well to secure uh, this premium item as a thank you gift, The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson, $125 premium. And listeners and supporters can also visit the KPFK website and become a monthly Sustainer Circle member by simply making monthly donations. So you can, if you don't um, have the money for the book or can't pick up the book, you can go to the kpfk.org website and become a monthly sustainer and donate $5 a month, you know, or donate $10 a month, whatever economically you can contribute, whatever you can financially help with in supporting KPFK and supporting American Indian Airways and supporting those alternative uh, voices and expanding the spectrum if you will, of uh, media diversity, of indigenous voices in the larger landscape of social justice and and human rights um, issues that we cover here on KPFK and that we cover here on American Indian Airwaves. So the book, again, is Dr. William Robinson's uh, new book, The Global Police State. And, you know, it's a powerful read, right? The Global Police State uses a variety of methods of control, including mass incarceration, surveillance, police violence, U.S.-led wars, the persecution of immigrants and refugees, and the repression of activists. And I think uh, Dr. Robinson really illuminates right how the global police state beyond control is an immensely profitable enterprise that keeps the global capitalist economy afloat in the face of chronic stagnation and I think it's it's a very direct 
easy, succinct read that Dr. William Robinson has done a prolific job in articulating. It's a powerful, informative book in educating yourselves um, individually as well as collectively as listenership and supporters of KPFK. Again, the number is 818 985 KPFK 818-985-5735 or visit the kpfk.org website. Pick up the thank you gift, the $125 premium, The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson or become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by making monthly denomination donations of your choice, $5, $10, maybe $20 um, if you can. Uh, Marcus. Larry, I want to read this one little section, and it's, I think it really signifies the book in itself. This global police state is emerging at a time when world capitalism descends into a crisis that is unprecedented. Given its magnitude, its global reach, the extent of ecological degradation and social deterioration, and the sheer scale of the means of violence that is now deployed around the world. My Larry, this is, in history of mankind, of humankind, this is unprecedented. And we can not only COVID-19, not only the climate change, but this is wrapped not, we're, he didn't even talk about the militarization of the world and nuclear, the nuclear power and what that means to our society today. But this in itself is not an easy read, but is an essential read. It's not an impossible read, but it's a read in which it talks about the surpluses that occur with the capitalist society can be not only privatized, as they are right now, but you become liberated in the sense of a production of, of, this, of goods and services for all of humanity, not just sections or not just, as we already know, Larry, that more billionaires and more millionaires are making more money today under the pandemic or under the crisis of capitalism than any time before. we got to switch that around. Absolutely. And the book points to certain things and how we do that or the reasons why that way. And I think one of the movements of the past with the 60s, 70s has been the notion of why things occur. And finally, when we realize why they occur, then we can state that this is the issue of the solutions are where you can find them. Larry, talk about the sustainers again. Okay, if you're a Native person, if you're a non-Native person out there listening to this program, and you say, well, I really don't have $300. I would like to donate $300, but I could donate $10. How does that work? Well, Marcus, all folks, uh, listeners and supporters have to do is visit the kpfk.org website and click on the, the widget to be uh, to donate and become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member. And from there, you know, listeners and supporters can determine, you know, their monthly donations that they want to make to support alternative media, to support KPFK, to support American Indian Airwaves, to support marginalized uh, voices in the American 
mass media landscape, which is dominated and controlled, you know, by a handful of legacy media and computer and information technology corporations that Dr. William Robinson so uh, prolifically addresses and speaks about as part of his brand new book, The Global Police State by Dr. William Robinson, $125 premium. And uh, again, the number is 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or the KPFK website is kpfk.org. Well, Marcus, with that, I, I want to um, direct our listeners to an interview that we did uh, the other day. Both you and I, we interviewed Dr. Kyle Mays and um, talking about Afro-indigeneity and, and a whole lot more. And that's not a topic that we've discussed uh, or reported on a lot over the years. We certainly touched on it and covered it. But we, we you and I both had the opportunity to have an in-depth conversation with Dr. Uh, Kyle Mays. And and uh, I want to give listeners the opportunity to hear from Dr. Kyle Mays and and hear about and experience some of the work that you and I have done over the years here on American Indian Airwaves as one of the longest running uh, indigenous uh, public affairs radio programs in the history of broadcasting uh, within the politically defined borders of the United States. And I think that also says a lot, too, about the the generations of people that have hosted, have co-hosted the show and have brought frontline indigenous voices here to the program here on American Indian Airwaves. Larry, I want to mention also, I want to mention also Dr. Fabian Hurst-Dupin, that's been an international correspondent, so South and how that expresses and her input helps the collective, you might say, of the reporting that we do and it reaches out into the hemisphere as well as the Pacific Islanders and, and, the, and the indigenous people around the world in which we attempt to share the information as the frontline fighters of capital and their fight for their daily lives. And we do that to bring you, the listeners, that information and that analysis by variety of means and doing that, that what you said, Larry, in other words, to bring out what is silenced by the commercial media and we have and have the opportunity to give a voice to the voiceless. And now part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Kyle Mays on Afro-Indigeneity, Historical Contemporary, African-American Indigenous Solidarity and the Future here on American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Professor Kyle T. Mays, Ph.D., Assistant Professor of the Department of Afro-American Studies, American Indian Studies Center, and the Department of History, University of California, Los Angeles. We're speaking about indigenous population and the Afro-American community within the United States and the West Coast. So welcome to the American Indian Airways, Professor Mays. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this important conversation. Now, first of all, we know that the American population, there's some to the nature of 5.2 million people in the United States identify as American Indian and Alaska Natives. 42 mm-hmm. million people identify as Afro-American population, which is 13 percent of the total population, we are talking about the interaction and also the history of those two populations, a very distinct history and a very misinterpreted history. So, Professor Mays, could you please, first of all, talk about the myth 
of those two communities in relationship to each other? Yes, I, I think there's always um, at least a few myths. So, number one, I think it's important to to remember that those people who are forced on slave ships to come to indigenous land, a variety of nations in their land, those were indigenous peoples, right? We kind of erased that uh, particular history and narrative, you know, not acknowledging that they were Akan, Yoruba, and, uh, you know, a host of other indigenous tribes with their own forms of uh, indigenous cultures, etc. So, like, that's myth number one, because we erased that through the transatlantic slave trade. The other thing is we focus a lot on the five tribes, and rightfully so. There's a tragic history of the five tribes um, enslaving Africans. It's in some of their treaties. For instance, the Seminole Tribes Treaty in 1823. They have a, a particular section in there where it says, they will be compensated financially for returning uh, escaped slaves within their treaty, uh, as one example. But also, the, some of the early indigenous Africans who interacted with Native peoples on the, um, on the northeast coast, for instance, Paul Cuffey. Often in Black History Month, I remember learning about Paul Cuffey as a kid, but I, I didn't know until I was an adult that he was uh, Wampanoag, and... Um, a con on his father's side. So he's really one of the first Afro-Indigenous peoples uh, in the Americas uh, that that we know of what, in what became the U.S. So there were different, different sorts of interactions that happened much earlier on. And I'll sort of stop there, but I just, I like to re help people reimagine and reorient their understanding of when these two communities begin to interact. Yes, and within that, please go over some of the past history. I know it's the information and the history, we can't cover it all in this conversation, but yet the basis of that was in the Southeast, within uh, the Southern United States and even the Caribbean. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we, we know that uh, as, as a, the, sub, the Southeastern tribes, right, they're trying to, in the 19th century, they're trying to halt U.S. encroachment further into their land. And so what they did was, as a compromise, and uh, Africans, enslaved Africans became a pawn in this, they decided to enslave them uh, to demonstrate, on the one hand, that they were civilized, but on the other hand, to be able to halt U.S. encroachment on their land. Now, in hindsight, we can say that it did not work out, uh, of course, to their detriment, but that, it, that is a, a particular history that we have to acknowledge that. And, and Native slavery was not any better than uh, we might say American slavery. That is a myth as well. There's been uh, numerous scholars over the years who have documented this uh, particular point in history. So it's a tragic one, but one that I think uh, the five tribes in particular as nations are coming to grips with and still need to come to grips with um, within their particular histories. And in the Caribbean, it's not really my expertise, but certainly there are uh, indigenous folks in the Caribbean who interacted with Africans during the during the slave trade in that particular area as well, because the majority of people from the African continent, the enslaved peoples, went down to the Caribbean and parts of uh, northeastern Brazil as well. Kyle, I, um, in talking about indigenous peoples from the continent of Africa, indigenous peoples here, and you know, walking back through our ancestors' uh, history, right? There is um, this 
presentation or framing right of indigenous peoples from Africa and then indigenous peoples from here. But there's also a long history of um, intermarriage or cohabitating that helps shape and influence indigenous identity. And I think of, you know, Jack Forbes's work um, uh, from mm-hmm. a while ago. I was also, uh, I think of Terry Brooks's uh, anthology, um, albeit uh, a, a bit old at this point, uh, The Indian Black Experience in North America that, that speak to that. And I was wondering, when we talk about Afro-indigeneity and, and what you've already articulated, how does that indigenous black experiences of our ancestors shape and influence Afro-indigeneity today? Well, I think it does uh, a few things. Um, first, I think we, we have to understand, like you're right, that there are these connections. I mean, you know, even teaching students and uh, going around Indian country at times, there's still this narrative, what I like to call through the lens of Deloria, that is the great Sioux intellectual Vine Deloria Jr., that there's very little connections between African Americans and Native Americans, right? So he's talking about the Black Power and Red Power movement. But in fact, what I what I try to uncover in some of my own work is that there were certain connections that have been erased from the historical record. For instance, in the 1960s when Deloria is writing, and he does make a note to mention Stokely Carmichael, but Stokely Carmichael, who has changed his name to Kwame Ture, he then uh, is very active with the American Indian movement in the 1970s. Uh, for in um, 1974 in St. Paul, Minnesota, Stokely Carmichael gives a fantastic speech about that this is not white people's land. Their land is Africa. But as a person living here now, his job is to support Native people in their struggles for land. And that is the default in how he understood solidarity, is to make sure Native people get land. And I think you see more of that today uh, with uh, certain moments in particular areas around Black Lives Matter. So from that particular time period to the present, I think uh, of greater focus on solidarity and the returning of land has somewhat returned in certain circles. I think that's very, that discussion is very important. But going back in history a little bit, if we, if we can, because I do want to get there. But in the sense of the experience of the Afro-American community and with the indigenous community in different nations, the African community being more homo- uh, homogeneous and the native community being heterogeneous and in the sense of many different nations, different, different cultures. But yet within the growth of this United States of America, we can see that prior to the Civil War and after the Civil War, there were certain policy changes, number one. But second of all, and I want you to speak about that, and I think Larry touched upon that a little bit, and that is the um, offshoot after the, the Reconstruction era and also mm-hmm. the Indian policy allotment, and then I don't want to get into the, to the IRA, but to the allotment period, how those two things reflected in the westward expansion and mm-hmm. an example of that is the Indian Territory. Walk us through that, please. Yeah, so um, during the Civil War, of course, and, and immediately after, there are four million uh, people of African descent who then all of a sudden gain their freedom. So the majority, of course, living in uh, what was the southeastern U.S. And so what, what do they do? Some are trying to migrate. Um, the great example often given are the Buffalo Soldiers who, who are moving out west, uh, and they're working on behalf of the U.S. government 
And unfortunately, they're engaging in forms and trying to dispossess uh, Native nations on the plains and further west. So they are engaging in this sort of murderous practice. But we also have to consider what their particular reasons are, too. That doesn't justify their actions, but they did have their own reasons, right? They're recently free. And so as the U.S. continues to expand, you have more and more people of African descent, former slaves, going out west. Now, what happens with some of the tribes during that particular period? So, for instance, the five tribes are forced to sign um, treaties. And this is a great controversy, which I don't want to get into too much detail, great controversy among the five tribes today, especially the Cherokee Nation, where they're said that they're supposed to, the U.S. said that in order, they have to drop slavery from their tribal nations, and they also have to adopt the Cherokee freedmen. Now, the issue is some of the Cherokee freedmen had, they were Cherokee princes by blood, and also uh, they became citizens for the simple fact of being enslaved by Cherokees. And so during this period, you have, on the one hand, great land loss uh, happening to Native peoples, that is, the U.S. taking land from them, but you also have great migration, uh, to some extent, for African Americans. Now, those freedoms become very restricted, of course, with the rise of the KKK, et cetera. But th those are some of the highlights of that particular era, and there's so much fascinating things uh, happening during that time period, but those are just some of the highlights. A lot of times we, there's references to the, right, the Buffalo Soldiers, and, and I know, um, you know during this time in, in history in relationship to indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations that you have a good deal of, or a number of African Americans working on behalf of the government, but there are also translators. And I was wondering if, um, mm -hmm. if you could speak to that and, and how African translators uh, play a role during this time in American history. Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, there were, uh, even among the five tribes, there were people who were translating between the U.S. government yeah. and the tribal nations, uh, even uh, those who were enslaved. I think the historian Taya Miles has done a great job of explaining this on uh, House on Diamond Hill, hmm. a Cherokee plantation story, um, about the importance of these enslaved Africans uh, and then later free Africans as translators uh, negotiating treaties and other forms of uh, contracts between tribal nations and the U.S. government. So certainly that was uh, a significant role that those people played. Yes. Um, within this real dynamic time, like it wasn't, thank you for explaining it, because it, this time was very dynamic. It wasn't in the sense of, well, uh, A, then B, then C, then D. Everything happened at once. And within this, mm -hmm. because if you want to focus this on the Buffalo Soldier, I think you're missing the point of, the uh, the antebellum South and the role within uh, white supremacy and white shamanism mm -hmm. that that um, affected both Native community and African American community. For example, like within the Midwest, the Red Nations used to be called Red in uh, in the N word, right? And mm -hmm. uh, looking at those peoples within the Midwest as very much of this racist and chauvinistic attitude toward a lot of people within the African American community as it's still with the Native American community. Talk about that for a second for our listeners, um, about white supremacy and the and the parallels between the two groups. Yeah, I mean, um, so, and for me in understanding uh, Afro-Indigenous history, and you're right, we have to understand that settler colonialism and white supremacy or Indigenous dispossession and anti-blackness 
are two parallel projects that are happening at the same time and are central to understanding, on the one hand, U.S. history um, and where the U.S. is today, and on the other hand, the relationships, the dynamic relationships between uh, people of African descent and indigenous peoples in the U.S. Um, and so the, these particular parallel histories, they diverge often in some ways, or at least that's how people can write about them or understand these histories. And on the other hand, this is how we can uh, sort of begin to analyze and, and figure out new ways to understand these relationships going forward. Uh, and, and so there's, there's so many particular um, examples of how this can work. For instance, uh, the great African writer James Baldwin, whom I, I love and adore as a writer, uh, and the uh, great speech he gave in 1965, I think, in Oxford, when he's talking about what it means to be a Negro, this is his phrasing during the time, but he uses this narrative of native genocide to construct uh, what I would call African-American belonging, or why the U.S. nation-state needs African-Americans. If not, they'll experience a genocide similar to Native Americans. But to me, that's a limited discourse because it perpetuates this idea of native genocide, which is also a function of white supremacy as well. So it, it can get kind of sticky um, in, in who belongs and who doesn't within these parallel projects. I think it's so interesting <laughs> about this um, question of, uh, we, now we call it racism, but very much of the color question, the question of color, the question of mm -hmm. placing those two communities, the sense of enslavement, because in the West Coast, slavery or slavery within California Native tribes, as well as many mm -hmm. other tribes, as well as slavery within the Caribbean and Southern community, which you uh, kind of alluded to. But talk about that, about the, these other aspects of, of that parallelness between the indigenous communities and within Afro-American communities. Yes, yeah, slavery is a, is a huge impact, uh, like you said, mentioned in California, and there's a fantastic book, The Other Slavery, mm -hmm. uh, that came out, I believe, in 2016 by Blanking on the Name. But uh, the author does a fantastic job of demonstrating the variety of forms of slavery or bondage, we might call it, uh, whether that's um, domestic servitude, where they're forced to work in certain domestic spheres, uh, especially women, as sex workers, etc. And these are some of the parallel things you can find in forms of African enslavement as well. Um, so sexual assault, violence towards women, uh, working in particular households. So there are many parallels between enslavement. And I mean, something that we do erase in uh, U.S. history in general are that there were Native people sent down in the 17th and uh, 18th century, sent down to the Caribbean as enslaved peoples, and they their stories get sort of erased during uh, as well. So yeah, their slavery is a central function also of settler colonialism and white supremacy, and and what connects these two histories. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves here on KPFK. That was part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Kyle T. Mays. He is assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies and the American Indian Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. We want to remind listeners that KPFK is currently in fun drive mode and we do need your support. Here at KPFK, we are offering Dr. William Robinson's brand new book, The Global Police State, as a $125 premium. You can call 
KPFK 818-985-5735, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and also become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by agreeing to make monthly donations of your choice. And now we want to take you back to our interview with Dr. Kyle Mays on Afro-Indigenism and Indigenous peoples and African-Americans' historical and contemporary acts of solidarity and the future. And now back to the interview. In talking about, uh, you know, the institution of slavery and a lot of times, even in um, the book that you're mentioning, uh, that you referenced, The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America, was it Andres uh, Resendez is the author? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and he does a really powerful job of excavating, right, the archives and and showing um, this global institution of slavery really uh, rooted in enslaving indigenous peoples. Um, when we talk about uh, the Western Hemisphere, indigenous peoples here, and then indigenous peoples from the continent of, of Africa. And we tend to know little or not much about uh, that narrative of the institution of slavery and how it applies to Native Americans. But in speaking to settler colonialism, there is this constant, uh, and I was wondering maybe you can speak to this and, and how does it complicate matters, I guess, in, in telling Afro and indigeneity um, narratives is that there's this in a Western um, colonial context or in, in systems, uh, ideological systems in, in the United States, they're rooted in these uh, binary constructions. So history tends to get mm-hmm. told through white, black, or white, native binaries and and that really functions as a false dichotomy but so much mm-hmm. of american history and even current affairs and issues get taught through this uh, western epistemic uh, lens and so i was wondering if you could maybe speak to the to that and why it's so problematic you're right i mean we it's we cannot continue to think about um, these particular histories in binaries, right? It doesn't make sense. Uh, things are always much more complicated and intersectional than they always, than they can appear. Uh, so even something like the history of race, right? Uh, one of my favorite people, I think most people agree, although <laughs> I like the more radical person of this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., not the... Uh, <laughs> You know, the content of your character that some people like to hold on to. But in in one of his books, he has a particular line about that this country was born in genocide and that racism really begins not with anti-blackness that is often taught, and that was a foundational part, but with the genocide and the anti-Native policies enacted towards Native peoples. And that's a little known fact. Dr. King actually begins racism in the U.S. began with anti-Native sentiment and, and indigenous genocide. And I think that's a crucial point in helping us rethink, one, the foundations of racism in the U.S., but two, that these two things can coexist. Like two things, again, indigenous dispossession, anti-Indigenous sentiment and anti-Blackness can coexist. Even though they might have uh, different outcomes or seemingly have different outcomes, they're produced by the same con- produced within the same context, and that is white supremacy. Well, that brings the question of white supremacy and industrialization. White supremacy and the development of industry and the segregation of the workforce, mm-hmm. whether it be Indigenous or whether it be 
whether it be in the different uh, segments of North, the northern United States and even the West. Do you see uh, the question of prejudices and isolation of those different communities as a precursor to the wealth divide and the income divide or income gap? Talk about that for a second. Yeah, I think um, I think white supremacy, its major goal is to divide people, keep people divided, and to get people to focus simply on uh, differences that white supremacy uh, created. So, for instance, that there are no connections between blacks and natives or uh, getting the major population to say that that's a black issue, that's a native issue. Instead of thinking, what, as you're saying, what is the particular issue? If it is something like development or deindustrialization, we know without without development, that is the, how the U.S. is a world power as it is today, you have massive underdevelopment. Um, you also had changes in gender dynamics as well within particular communities. So <clears throat> I think that is absolutely true. And with that, we can see that an example of the antithesis of that or the opposite of that, and that is like in Standing Rock where many people from across the United States would support of uh, the issues of Standing Rock. And within that, because you, you mentioned a little bit about solidarity within the 60s, the Black Panther Party was very instrumental, along with many other movements at that time. For example, like with the Red Power Movement and the activity and sharing activity with the Black Panther Party and within the mm-hmm. Rumberets and Young Lords and so on and so forth. But that this notion of solidarity even like Fred Hampton talking about going down the South and that unity between the, the Southern workers and the Northern workers created a havoc within the, against the notion of these particular communities should be separate, their issues uh, are not the same, and therefore never the two shall meet. Do you think that's, that created a sense of traction in, for the 60s for the traction for today, especially with the Black Lives Matter and within the Standing Rock issue. Absolutely. I mean, they created a foundation, and I know uh, it seems like some of these movements sort of dissipated in the 80s and the 90s, but you remember in the early 90s there were, like, black and native farmers um, and the South trying to collaborate and work together. Uh, And so uh, Standing Rock is sort of a a moment and if we could say a reflective a reflection not only of the current times but also of the past and looking at people like the groups like the Black Panther Party or um, certain uh, black celebrities like Harry Belafonte uh, working and Dick Gregory working with uh, Native communities during the fishings in the early fishing movements in the uh, Pacific Northwest in the early 1960s so that certainly set a foundation and um, made it an essential part of what we see today. And so I, I'm very heartened about uh, what has happened over the last uh, five years or so. You mentioned land earlier, and, and um, how do you see uh, what's materialized uh, over the decades in terms of Afro-Indigenous uh, solidarity movements in terms of land? Because we all we all know that for you know indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations as place based peoples, you know land is so pivotal to who we are, right? Uh, land, language, and and life, and the means for cultural transmission for future generations, uh, in order to have cultural sustainability. Yeah, I mean, 
I think I think one of the uh, best examples of this form of solidarity and I'm, is has been in Detroit mm-hmm. and Flint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, Detroit and Flint are predominantly African American, right. but there's been a fantastic solidarity, at least on the ground, and it, I don't think it's reported as much. Uh, where Native people are holding water ceremonies, working on the ground uh, with African American organizations, and trying to get a better sense of what it means for African Americans uh, who are forced to come here, who are the descendants of people forced to come here, what it means to belong on Native people's land and work in concert with them. Right. Uh, so th- to me, those are two important examples. And around particular issues, right, like water. Right. Who doesn't need fresh water to live live on? And so working around particular issues uh, related to the land, I think, has been phenomenal. Uh, and it's still ongoing in those particular places. Well, I want to take the conversation a little bit differently. And, and uh, Professor Mays, uh, I hope you have some comments on this. And that is the question of culture and the question of music, mm-hmm. and the question of uh, rock and roll, and the contributions of, of African American population and Native American population in the, you might say, like what, what Joe Harjo talks about, we discovered jazz, you know, and, and as he plays the sax. <laughs> Can you talk about music and the role of those two different, different populations? Yeah, well, I mean, this, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned this. Just to remind everyone, the white people did not create uh, rock and roll, <laughs> just so everyone knows this. I mean, it, you know, it might be kind of, they might dominate the genre in some, uh, in the mainstream sense, but it was African Americans, it was Native people, it was sound. Like, these mm-hmm. things haven't always been clearly articulated, mm-hmm. but when you talk to uh, elders and you talk to other folks, Joy Harjo in particular, they they see certain cultural elements that are distinctly uh, Native and African American, and how those two things have sort of come together. So, music is is been one particular way this has happened, and then in the in the present time, of course, there's uh, Indigenous hip hop, which to me is the modern uh, iteration of this sort of sonic uh, solidarity, if you will, <laughs> right? Where where you have Native artists who are rapping, and if you know rapping, it's a form of, a distinct form of African-American vernacular culture. So they're doing that, but they're telling Native stories, they're telling Native urban stories, Native res stories, and they're sharing unique things about Native culture. So uh, indigenous hip-hop is one of the uh, most important cultural uh, forms of solidarity and representation, I think, uh, for Native people today. Well, do you think in the last... Uh, let's say forty years that there's been a fusion between the two communities, and and if that's so, why do you think that that occurred and occurring? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if there has been a fusion more so than uh, things are more out in the open and more acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And I do want to also know that there are are certainly tensions on both sides that continue to exist. Um, you know, rampant anti-blackness in Native communities, r- rampant anti-Indigenous sentiments, and just straight-out erasure in African-American communities. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly over the last, I'll say, 10, 15 years or so, uh, and maybe a little bit longer uh, through cultural connections, those things have begun to uh, change, and I think for the better. You know, when you talk about Indigenous hip-hop and um its origins, um, you know, I think, think about uh, hip-hop as it emerges in the late 60s and 70s, going back to, 
you know, the last poets and mm-hmm. and a lot of other artists and how ethnographic it is and its biting commentary, right, of forms of settler colonialism and how and, and I was wondering maybe you could speak to that and do you see that as a as a bridge in, in how indigenous peoples uh, also pick up and express forms of hip hop in those in those very ethnographic realities of those artists. Yeah, I mean, many are are the native hip hop artists that I know. They're doing explicitly that. Uh, some of my favorite ones. I mean, it's it's in Canada, but T. Ryan, Equal, and 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 others are telling us stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Uh, my guy Southie in Detroit are telling things. Are talking about the Flint water crisis. And, and everyday things happening too, and, but also uplifting uh, indigenous peoples, uplifting their uh, African brothers and sisters. So there's some fantastic work being done to tell the reality, the, these ethnographic realities, if, as you were stating, about what it means to be native today and also what it's going to mean to be native going forward. I you reminded me, Professor May, that nothing is just as simple as this and that, or cause and effect, about a, there's been a lot of critical issues regarding, um, especially during industrialization and farming and land and whatnot, the, the argument and the violence between these communities, too. It's not just a pretty scene, everybody getting together, but yet it's, it's been a mishmash of historical events and of organizing and of one community not representing or not acknowledging another aspect of another community, which um, because of we live in a colonial apparatus, we have Mm -hmm. a a sense of everything goes from A, B, C, and D, rather than A all the way to Z again and back to F. (laughs) In other words, it's, it's very zigzag. It's not, you know, the picture is not simply a... You know, because we have this conversation, it's very convoluted in a very yeah. mixed kind of way. But that being said... And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Kyle Mays, who's assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies and the American Indian Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. We're speaking on Afro-Indigeneity, the past and present, solidarities between African Americans and indigenous peoples, and the future. And now, back to the interview. This question of and I wanted to um, specifically ask you and about the recently, and we went a lot with history, and especially in certain periods of time with both communities of history, but yet Dr. DeJury talked about the post-traumatic slave syndrome, mm-hmm. and the many of our community talks about the uh, multi-generational historical trauma or the wounded soul effect of our both communities. Do they have a parallel? And do you think, because of the fact that we're acknowledging about the slave syndrome, acknowledging about, you know, what the boarding schools did, acknowledging about the missing, murdered indigenous women, LBGT communities, acknowledging all these different things, people are realizing, hey, we are in the same boat. We are mm-hmm. in the same particular situation where exploitation, oppression, and this notion of racism affects us all, and then we need to understand this, number one. But secondly, we need to do things in order to, to like many indigenous people down in Mexico State, that we need to form another world that all can sit. Talk about that. Talk about this 
syndrome. Talk about the historical trauma for a second for our communities. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been deeply heartened over the last five to six years, and people understanding just that we are in this colonial uh, matrix, this white supremacist matrix. We continue to suffer and are coming to terms with uh, the slave disorder, intergenerational trauma. And I think it's it's a lot of, <laughs> it's traumatic to also accept that you are a product of trauma, right? And I, this is why, you know, I, I certainly think we need more uh, black and indigenous um, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, around, you know, dealing issues around mental health because uh, youth suicide amongst both communities continues to be an issue. And I, I do think that is related uh, to a particular post-traumatic slave syndrome and intergenerational trauma that continues to impact uh, all of us. And I think all of us from those communities um, should certainly benefit from those things. But at the same time, I think a lot of the activism uh, in cities around the U.S., even in Mexico, People are trying to come to terms with, I don't want to live in this particular society. I don't want to live under a police state. I don't want to want to live under a capitalist state that is based strictly on exploitation. So what kind of world do I want to live in? And I think that is the activism, um, in, in part, that helped get the former president, Donald Trump, removed from office. And what it, people are trying to hold uh, Joe Biden, the current president, uh, hold his feet to the fire in order to enact change. Uh, even basic things around the $15 minimum wage, which studies saying isn't even good enough anymore, uh, canceling student loan debt, et cetera. So I think there's a certain awakening, but it's all based on organizing. And when people organize and around particular goals, then things get accomplished. But each group has to understand their own history, uh, their own reality, and work within those confines before they try to find solidarity. Because that's a mistake I think people can make as well. Well, I was I was thinking of um, you, you know just uh, you know, going back home every year uh, the settler colonial dynamic of whiteness and how that's used as a tool of oppression, right, between mm -hmm. in indigenous peoples and in African Americans historically. And I was wondering if um, do you still see that as a tool or a me colonial mechanism used today, and and how is that overcome? How is that uh, neutralized, if if you will? I think I think one way <laughs> to overcome that is <laughs> such a difficult question, but but one worth worthwhile though. I think one way that we have to continue to do this is to sit down with each other. Yeah. It sounds simple and uh, idealistic, but something I've been thinking about and would love to see is what if we get some of our black elders, our Afro-Indigenous elders, and our, and our Indigenous elders together to share stories about their experiences, about struggle, about life, and also have you know, our young people and, and sit down and have a conversation. And with that, you don't always need... Uh, we need to sit down and like, what kind of world do we want to live in? And I would love to see that happen, like having different uh, conversations on the res in urban communities and just sit down and talk <laughs> and learn about each other's histories, right? And, and, you know, share common readings, but also just hear stories. And until we really begin to do that, and I think stories are an essential part of organizing and learning about individuals, right, and connecting with them on a human level. One of my favorite writers, Leanne Simpson, talking about the I Don't Know More movement in Canada, she says one of the limits of social media is, is 
wonderful as it can be in connecting people. What it the flip side of that is when you get upset or disagree with someone, you can cancel them, right? Just over social media, you don't have to interact with them. Mm-hmm. Instead of you know when you know someone, even if you disagree, you will sit. You're more likely to sit down and talk and try to work things out. And I think that's the importance of. And I don't mean accountability around cancel culture, but just like yeah. not canceling people because you disagree. Of course, we should all be held accountable, but at some yeah. point, all of us are going to get canceled. <laughs> well, then, then uh, you know, I guess the question would be is, you know, what, what do the cultural practices look like from indigenous, Afro-indigenous, or in uh, African communities when it comes to uh, these kind of gatherings, right? So indigenous, we can talk about, you know, a uh, talking circle and, you know, and those kind of cultural practices where everybody uh, has the opportunity to speak and, and everybody listens, um, you know, when that per- to that person that's speaking. And, and so everybody has their place, right? And, and that hoop in that, mm-hmm. that, that circle of life. And, and part of that circle of life is, right, being heard by everybody and everybody listens to everybody. Exactly. And, and my Aunt Judy, who founded um, Medicine Bear American Indian Academy, it was the third ever public school uh, in Detroit with a Native American curriculum. She would do just that. And some of the teachers who were not accustomed uh, <laughs> to this sort of thing, she, she would, instead of you know isolating this person and yelling at the kid, she, and, and for adults too, she'd be like, okay, well, we all need to sit and talk and figure out what is the source of the problem. And it was frustrating, but they would always try to come to some solution, you know, acknowledging harm or whatever the issue was, but also like figuring out how do we repair the harm and how do we maintain a relationship or a family, if you will, or kinship, right? And, and to me, that's the importance of those meetings, circles, etc. Yes, I think that's so important, what you're saying, talking about organizing, you're talking about healing, you're talking about... Uh, listening and talking about telling our stories because once we get telling our stories, like you said, that we can go from a level of not knowing to a level of hearing somebody else. It's so important. And ending, Professor Mays, what um, you're coming up with um, a series of discussions and you are finishing a book, I believe, or finished yes. a book. And tell us about that. What's the title and when is it going to come out? Yeah, so the title of the book is called An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, uh, and it will be out at Beacon Press November 9th, 2021. Uh, so I, I just submitted it to my editor. Uh, now I have to do the hard work of the <laughs> edits and the copy editing, but I'm excited. And uh, just a quick tidbit about the book. What it tries to do is demonstrate some of the things we've been talking about today that there have been uh, deep connections between African Americans and Native Americans and movements for social justice and trying to reimagine and make better uh, what we have come to know as American democracy. So I moved from the pre-revolutionary America uh, well into the present through cultural exchanges between African Americans and Native Americans. So. I'm excited about the book, and I hope uh, people will um, find it interesting and important as well. And one last question. I think it's, it's going to be amiss if I didn't ask you this question, because within the Chumash community and with the Diné community and many other communities out there, there's a lot of um, now marriages between African-American and Native American people and, and developing their relationships and having families and whatnot. What, what do you say to them? I would say, and I'm a product of these relationships, but 
in, in, in growing up and learning about my own family, there were no contradictions between being uh, black and, ble- and being native, right? So, so, you know, and one could kind of move in between these two different communities. But just raising them, one, to be the best humans you can, and don't fret too much about how they'll turn out. I mean, if you make sure, you know, you do your best as a parent, and you can still do your best, and you know the child doesn't turn out the way you think. But just acknowledging that they are—they live in a world where they they can be treated uh, as black. They live in a world where being black or native is not welcoming, you know, outside of their community and family. But understanding that they're going to have to deal with the double burden of uh, anti-blackness and anti-indigenous sentiment. But with that. They come from two beautiful cultures, and as long as they have community, they will be all right. The moment of silence is over. And that was Dr. Kyle Mays, who's an assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies and the American Indian Center at University of California, Los Angeles, speaking on Afro-Indigeneity, the cross-sectional solidarity between African Americans and indigenous peoples historically and today, and reimagining a future. We want to remind everybody here on American Indian Airwaves to support KPFK. We are in our fun drive mode, and we are offering The Global Police State, a brand new book by Dr. William Robinson. It's a $125 premium, and we encourage everybody to pick it up at the website. The Global Police State uses a variety of methods of control, including mass incarceration, surveillance, police violence, U.S.-led wars, and a whole lot more. And we encourage all of you to pick up the book, The Global Police State, by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or visit the kpfk.org website. You can also become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by clicking on the Donate widget on the KPFK website and make monthly donations, monetary donations of your choice. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Dr. Kyle Mays. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And the empty promises We take a stand on the land that you tried to bury us For all the pain and all the suffering We take a stand We take a stand We sleep caged against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over